So welcome back to the Expert Edge. Uh, hope you're well. Are you well? Uh, right now, the weather in Newport Beach is quite nice. It's like 75 degrees. Uh, beautiful. Been down to the beach recently, getting back into my surfing, and it is all happening. And I literally just got off a podcast interview with an incredible man. His name is Jacob Morgan. Uh, he is a multiple times best-selling author massively in-demand keynote speaker. And you're going to love this podcast. We, we go deep into uh, his journey of going from, you know, you know, unknown to truly being an in-demand speaker, charging high fees and writing, you know, multiple best-selling books. Uh, and we really explore his journey. So if you want to be a speaker or if you want to speak on more platforms, we actually go really specific into some of the strategies he's used to build his speaking business. And uh, it's really cool, actually. We find a lot of similarities between his and my journey as well. So I trust you'll enjoy the podcast. If you find it useful, make sure to leave a review. And if you do leave a review, uh, take a screenshot of it and send it to my Instagram, just at Colin Boyd. And I will send over a course that we normally charge $197 for. I'll send it over to you as a thank you gift for free just for writing a review and following following the show. So let's get into it, my interview with Jacob Morgan. You are listening to the Expert Edge Podcast. This is the place where experts come to command the stage, position themselves as authorities and scale their business up. Get ready to access your next level of potential with your host, Colin Boyd. So Jacob Morgan, welcome to the Expert Edge. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm excited to have this conversation. Uh, you're a real leader in the industry in keynote speaking and speaking about leadership from the context of the vulnerability of leadership, the future of organizations, all that sort of stuff. You've spoken with huge, huge companies around the world, massive in-demand speaker and best-selling author. Um, but most I'm curious- importantly, you left out the most important thing. Oh, and you were born in Australia. There you go. <laughs> so, so we just discovered this, Jacob and I, because we've just met, um, but we just discovered this, that he was born in Melbourne. I was born in, in Australia, but he, he is based in the US, uh, just down the road from me, actually. So uh, there's a lot of camaraderie here. So it's going to be a good, yeah. it's gonna be a good I episode. I don't have a cool accent like you do, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, so good. Um, so tell, tell the listeners, Jacob, about... Um, I'm curious about before we get to like the the highlights. Tell us about this journey of you getting into being a speaker, because there's a lot of listeners who want to do more speaking. They want to be a speaker. Um, like, how did this like expert journey for you start? Where did this obsession come from, and how did that look like at the start? Yeah, I'm happy to share as much uh, or as deep as you want to go into that. Um, so I never sought out to do any of the stuff that I'm doing now. I never intended to be a speaker. I never intended to write books. My whole journey when I was in school was basically do good in college or do well in college. Uh, so you could see why I didn't do that that, that great in school. <laughs> do good. Um, so do, do well in college, graduate, and then go work for an organization and then have that company pay for my MBA and then work up the corporate ranks of whatever company I'm at to hopefully someday become maybe the chief marketing officer. Like that was my dream, right? Be the chief marketing officer of a big company. And that's what I thought my career path was gonna take. 
<clears throat> that was always been my intention. And I was always a really bad student. And in, in high school, in community college, my grades were abysmal. I had like a 2.7 something GPA. So I was a, you know, C-ish student, C plus student. And finally, when I got to college, I realized that this is the, the last opportunity I have. So I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, a couple hours uh, north from where you and I are. And uh, I double majored in economics and psychology. <clears throat> and I did really well, graduated with honors and uh, got this double major. And I was really excited to join the corporate world. And so I thought, okay, beginning of the plan, step one, complete, get good grades. Step two, get a job. So I ended up getting a job in downtown Los Angeles. Um, I lived in the valley, so it was around an hour and a half commute each way. So three hours a day, 15 hours a week driving. But I took the job because when I interviewed for this particular company, they told me that I'd be doing all this really cool stuff. Traveling the country, meeting with entrepreneurs, doing all this meaningful work. And I thought, great, that's why I worked so hard. So I took the job. And a couple months in to my job, I'm doing data entry and cold calling and PowerPoint presentations. And I'm sitting there thinking like, what the hell's going on here? Like, this is a complete bait and switch. I, like, I, I didn't need to go to school to do any of the stuff that I'm doing. And the pivotal moment for me was when the CEO comes out of his beautiful corner office in downtown LA. And he says, Jacob, get over here. I have an important project for you. And naturally, I got super excited. I ran over to the CEO and he takes out his wallet. And from his wallet, he produces a beautiful, crisp, clean $10 bill. He slaps it in my hand and says, I am late for a meeting and I need you to go down to Starbucks and get me a cup of coffee. And at that point, you could just see the, the, the wind, the, the energy, like <laughs> any excitement that I had about the corporate world just drained out of my body. And I became a shell of my former self. And I remember right after that, the first thing that I started doing while I had all this free time at work is I would Google things like how to make money online, how to not have a job. Um, search engine optimization, affiliate marketing. Like I would just Google anything I could possibly find to teach me how to make money without having to work for somebody else. Now, keep in mind, this was around 15 years ago. So I started a blog. I started writing. This was before, right? A lot of these social media platforms became popular. And I originally started off in this field of search engine optimization. I had one other full-time job in my life working for a marketing agency in Northern California, which is where I ended up moving to now back in LA since then. Similar story. I'm working for this marketing agency and I win a pass to go to a conference. This was the Web 2.0 Expo. A lot of people might remember this. Huge conference. The uh, world's top marketing professionals would go there. It, it was massive. And I was in the Bay Area, which is where it was hosting. And I win a pass to go to this conference. <clears throat> it's a $2,500 pass. It's a marketing conference. I work at a marketing agency. So I pitch my boss to go to this event. And I say, hey, I got this pass to go to the conference. I'm happy to work weekends or evenings to make up any work that I need to, but I don't have any immediate client deliverables. And it's a couple blocks away from our office. I could literally walk there. Can I go to this conference? And they're like, nope. And I say, well, why? I don't understand. Why can't I go? And they're like, you just can't go. All right, all right. So I quit my job and I went anyway. And that was the best decision that I ever made. And since then, I've been on my own and my career trajectory changed a little bit because I went from marketing and search engine optimization to social media, to social media inside of companies. Uh, some people might remember things like Salesforce Chatter and Yammer. So I started doing work uh, in that space. And then it evolved into this theme of the future of work and employee experience and leadership. 
And so this whole journey of speaking ultimately came from me creating a personal brand for myself, blogging and sharing my ideas. Um, and then the, the blog became popular. I got asked to speak at various places. I got asked to contribute to various places, built up a following on social media. And a lot of the time when I was doing speaking originally, I spoke for free. Uh, there actually were several mm -hmm. times where I had to cover my own flight. I was not a good speaker. My clothes didn't fit. Uh, my jackets were too big. My pants were too big. I, I was, it, it was quite honestly pretty bad. But then over time, I was like, wait a minute, you can get paid to speak? Like, this is, this is a business? And kind of the light bulb went off in my mind and in my head. And I thought, wow, this is a very interesting space to be in. So not only was I interested in the realm of leadership and how do you create companies where people actually want to show up to work each day, but I also became very fascinated with this idea of being able to build a career by speaking and sharing insights and research and, and, and things that I was able to come up with. So I, I was very intrigued with that. And uh, yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. Mm. And as your speaking <clears throat> career was building, how, how did you transition from being like an amateur speaker who's getting paid a low fee or no fee to starting to like really position yourself as an in-demand speaker, yeah. charging higher fees, all that sort of stuff. What was that transition look like? So at the beginning, um, as I mentioned, I would speak a lot for free, uh, spoke at a ton of free conferences, oftentimes even covering my, um, my own travel. And so just like with anything, you, as your brand grows, you I kind of view it as like building blocks. The more building blocks you put together, the more you can start to charge and the higher you can start to charge. So as soon as I had a first book, that was already, I could charge for speaking. Before I had the book, it was a little bit challenging to do that. Um, my first business book with McGraw-Hill came out in 2012. And then I wrote a social media book, which was not with like a traditional publisher. It was very thin, um, yeah. like, like a pamphlet almost. That came out in 2000. I want to say nine or eight and when social media was just getting popular. So having something like that kind of a resource that I could speak on certainly helped. But even then, right, charging low fees, maybe a couple thousand here and there if you can. And then you build. So you build, you build, you build, you get reviews for the book, you write more, you build a bigger personal brand, you get another book deal. Second book deal, next building block gets put on there. Again, you build on top of that and build. And now five books later, you know, you can charge, you know, much more for, um, for speaking fees and many, many, many tens of thousands of dollars for a speech, but it's all on those building blocks. And even today I view it, right? Every time I write a new book, you could bump up your speaking fee a little bit. Every time you get more, let's say I spoke, I spoke at Ted Academy a couple of years ago, a building block, charge a little bit more for that. Um, so it's all sort of, um, building and building and the more you build the 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 higher you can climb in terms of fees in terms of things that you can ask for the things that you can do in fact i'll never forget this was i don't remember how many years ago it was but <clears throat> i never knew that i could ask for a business class flight so i was speaking at all these events and uh i remember many years ago i was speaking at this conference in london and the company that brought me in they're like okay great and we'll you know we'll take care of your business class airfare and i was like whoa what? I've been flying economy class for the last eight years. I could ask for business class airfare. I had no idea. And so again, they, they offered it because again, I built, I had the building blocks there, but I didn't know what I didn't know. So after that point, I always started asking for business class flights and nobody ever challenges mm -hmm. that now. Now it's like, okay, okay, sure. 
So, you know, you learn along the way, you make mistakes along the way, but you have to build, right? I mean, you, anybody could speak. Very few people can get paid to speak and far fewer people can get paid very well to speak. But right now, if you go to any like a, you know, association or group or your local Rotary Club or Toastmasters or Chamber of Commerce, you could go speak. Nobody's going to pay you, but you could go give a talk for, you know, 45 minutes. But it's kind of like, you know, what are you going to do to be able to charge? Yeah, obviously, if you're an athlete, you're a celebrity, you're famous in whatever space, it's easy. But if you're not and you're trying to build from the ground up, then you need to have that, those building blocks, the book the personal brand, the whatever it is that you're creating to be able to justify those speaking fees. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is if you don't have celebrity, it, it, it's, it's, I like this, this philosophy of, of like building blocks of credibility and authority. And it's like, as you stack them, you can start to ask for more, you can start to get more. Yep. And do you find for you, um, like, you know, when you were first starting out, were you literally like searching conferences, applying for them, you know, manually trying to find oh, conferences, yeah. applying for free? I know for me, that's what I did when I first started. I was like just yes. searching everywhere, trying to apply to speak and everything. Yeah. Oh. And 100%. then how does it how does it look now? How does it look now for you? What is like the speaking business side of things for you? look like is it mainly just referrals from everyone who's in the audience because i know speeches create speeches yeah 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 but like what does it look like for you now yeah so early on it was 100 percent me reaching out um you know a lot of companies would host events a lot of public conferences apply to be a speaker i would apply to be a speaker they would say hey we're interested let's talk um do you guys cover travel maybe they'll cover travel maybe they won't maybe they have a budget maybe they don't and so I started doing that for a long time. And then the key there was I started recording a lot of my sessions, right? You want to, you want to create a speaking reel because when somebody wants to book you to speak, they want to know that you have, you know, a demo reel. It's, it's almost like going to an audition to be in a movie, right? I mean, you got to have some sort of a demo reel that you can show people. So obviously people come to your website, they make sure that you look professional, you look good, you sound good, you have interesting topics, you have good endorsements from people. If you worked with various companies, do you have a book? Like all these different pieces come together. So for me, I kind of had a checklist, right? Um, website that's professional and that conveys that I'm a speaker. Um, book, marketing assets, press kits, uh, professional headshots, speaker reel, YouTube channel, uh, optimized social presence online with LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, whatever those social channels were. Am I creating content on a regular basis? Like all of that stuff matters because people, you want to be found and then when people do find you, you want to make sure that people come to your website and they're like, wow, this person's a big deal. I should book them. Um, so originally, yeah, I was doing all the outreach. Today looks very different. Today, I get a lot uh, of inbound. It's pretty much all inbound. I don't do any outbound um, reach anymore. But I work with a lot of speaker bureaus who ask to list me on their site. Uh, I, I get emails on a regular basis from either companies who are connected with me through social channels or who subscribe to my newsletter or from speaker bureaus who say, hey, we have a client that's interested in having you speak. Can you, uh, you know, confirm your fees and all that kind of stuff? So the, you know, the more you're able to build for yourself in terms of a personal brand, the more outbound stuff that you'll get. So originally, it's sort of like, um, what would be a good analogy? You know, you're, you're doing all the outward stuff, and then it's like you flip a button, and then it's inward, right? It's like a, a pipe that's flowing water or a fan that's spinning one way, and then you flip the button, and then now it starts spinning the other way, or the water starts flowing the other way. Um, but it takes years, right? I mean, it took a decade for that to be able to happen. 
um, or, or thereabouts um, before I got the majority of it was inbound. So it's, it's a lot of hard work. I think some people have this impression that you can start speaking, you do it for maybe one, two, three years, and all of a sudden you're going to be charging $250,000 to give a keynote. It doesn't quite work like that. Unless, of course, you write a book, it sells millions of copies, it gets turned into a TV show. Yeah, then you can charge whatever you want. But for us mere mortals, that's, uh, that's not, really, not really how it works, unfortunately. Mm. I mean, I love hearing your journey. And I think it's great for all the listeners to kind of hear that, of that, that consistent hard work, that dedication, that building block, building the credibility, the authority um, to a place where you've got volume that creates you know, demand. It's more work than a full-time job, right? I mean, yeah, that's the other is, thing, right? It? I mean, a lot of times people, like I, I remember so many times when I would be speaking or if I was doing a book signing or something like that and people would say, oh, you're so lucky you get to do this. And I would get so annoyed with them because it wasn't about luck for me. I, I had a full-time job and then mm -hmm. after my full-time job, I would come home and I would have another full-time job, which was building my personal brand. So I was working like, 14, 15, 16 hour days for years. And then finally I quit my full-time job and I just started doing this, you know, but I was still 12, 13, 14 hour days for years. So it's not like luck in terms of, I just put myself out there to see what would happen. <clears throat> I mean, I worked like a psychopath, you know, that's <laughs> like, there's no other way, you know, there's no other way to explain it. Like you work yeah. like a crazy person because yeah. you're building yourself. Right? I mean, when you work for a company, it's easy to shut off at the end of the day because you're like, well, I don't have any ownership in the company. It's not my product, not my team, not my business. So I'm happy to just shut my computer at five o'clock, get in the next morning and get a paycheck. But when, it, when it's just you, you, you feel like every waking moment that you have should be spent building something. And so I would frequently in my mind, right, I would try to work out or I would do things and I would always get all these thoughts in my mind. Okay, I should do this. I should respond to this person. I should create that. And so your, your brain just doesn't stop. You know, I'd be up to like two, three, four in the morning so doing stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's not an easy path. It's not a path of least resistance. It's the path of most resistance. But if you can get down that path, then... I think you will find great success at the end of it, but it's not easy and it's not for everybody. Mm. It's so true. I mean, I remember it's so, I cannot believe how similar our paths are because the, my first market, my first job out of college was, was marketing and I was kind of average in school, crushed it in college and, and then went into marketing and just hated it. And then, and then I got into teaching and, um, and then into keynote speaking, but it's, dude, it's so cool hearing, yeah, like hearing that journey. And, and I know for me, the, the level of intensity yeah. just rose so much in me when I started doing it fully for myself, right? Like when I was working for a, a corporate, I'm like, I did not want to be at work. Now I work for yeah. myself and I just can't stop. Like it's so hard to stop. Yeah. And look, my wife does what I do, but she focuses on a different space. And to give people some context around how hard it is, right? I mean, she used to work for a Fortune 100 technology company doing social media and, and customer service and experience strategy for them. And she was laid off. And she was very bummed. And she's thinking, well, what the hell am I going to do now? I got laid off. And I said, now is the perfect time for you to build your personal brand. You should be Come a on. speaker in the space. And it took her years. You know, I mean, she was making barely anything. 
Uh, I think she even had unemployment at one point because that's how little she was making, if anything. I mean, now this year she's, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of competing, but I think this is going to be the year where she overtakes me in terms of revenue from speaking and building her brand. So she's like, whoop. That's um, amazing. Yeah. So it's, but again, she, she, she's been building this for years. She was on unemployment for a while. We lived in a tiny studio apartment together in the Bay area. That was maybe like 500 square feet. You know, it's, uh, it's not, it, it looks fun later, but you know, I'm not in my, th- I'm just turned 40. My wife is in her late thirties. We've been building this stuff since at least me, since uh, my twenties, my wife, since her, I think late twenties as well. So, you know, the context there, I think, matters for a lot of people. And I was very, you know, my circumstance mattered too, right? Had I been in my position now, let's say I had a full-time job up to this point, and today I got laid off, I don't know what I would do, right? I mean, I, I have two kids, I have a mortgage, I have two dogs, I have car payments. Would I be in a position to go off on my own now and potentially not make any money for several years? You know, that's a conversation you got to have with your spouse. That's a personal choice and a decision that you need mm-hmm. to make. You know, I, the, the path, the smart path I think a lot of people can take is use your job as your safety net. And while you have that full-time job, build on the side. Yeah, you're going to watch a little less TV. And yes, you might have a little bit less free time for yourself. But that's what it's going to take for you. And then when you start to be, when you see that you're making enough money to at least cover your expenses... You can jump ship from your full-time job and focus purely on the thing that you have going on the side. But, you know, people have different risk and tolerance levels. Um, different people go about it in different ways. I went about it what is in what I consider to be a safer way, right? I had a full-time job. I was doing gigs on the side. Once I made enough money on the side, I was like, all right, you know, see you later. Mm. Yeah, I know, it, it's, I know for me, I was working part-time. And my wife was working full time, yeah. And because, and it's so fascinating because I, I hear sometimes people complain and say, "Oh, you know, Colin, at the moment I'm not I'm I'm spending more on my business than I'm making." Yeah. And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> that that's how it works at the start. It's like you you usually spend more than you make <laughs> at the start, and then that investment eventually catches up to you." I know for me it was probably a year or more that I spent more than I was making. And then it started to catch up and then started to accelerate. But it it is so true. Like sometimes I feel like in this world, people can see people and be like, oh my gosh, like that's that's amazing. And there's these stories of people, you know, going from zero to a million dollars in like six months or something. But for most people, you know, it's a, it's a building a building process that they need to go through. And, and oh, yeah. I did, I love that. Tell me about you, you, you speak in to a lot of major corporations uh, around the world around um, leadership, the future of work, uh, <clears throat> vulnerability in leadership. And I know you've got a new book coming out all around um, leading with vulnerability. And so just chat to me about and chat to the audience about like your take on what vulnerability looks like and, and then apply it to the idea of even being, because we have a lot of coaches and experts, what that, what that looks like for them in their world based around like some of your takes on vulnerability. 
the the new book is called Leading with Vulnerability. And um, I wrote this book specifically because I, I was, so when I wrote my previous book, it was called The Future Leader. It came out in 2020. And I interviewed a lot of CEOs for that book. And I was asking them around uh, important, crucial mindsets and skill sets for current and aspiring leaders. And a leader doesn't have to be somebody who has a full-time job. A leader, anybody who's looking to make a lasting impact, motivate and inspire others, coach others, help make other people more successful. It doesn't have to be in the context of a full-time job. And I would ask a lot of these CEOs, well, what's important for this kind of leadership success? And the theme of emotional intelligence and vulnerability started to come up. And so that kind of planted the seed in my mind. But then I also realized from a lot of the conversations that I had even for my new book is that vulnerability in a work environment and vulnerability in a personal environment are not the same. So for context, the way that we think about vulnerability, obviously Brene Brown did a lot of amazing work and research in that space, but a lot of people think of vulnerability as you do or say something so that it exposes you to the potential of emotional harm. So it could be maybe I talk about something personal or I talk about a mistake or a failure or a challenge. So I say something or I do something whereby you having that information, I've exposed myself in a certain way so that you could take that information and use it as a way to harm me. So simple example, right? Let's say we're at a company together and I tell you, hey, Colin, I've never actually really done that before. I'm a little nervous. You take that information, you go to our boss and you're like, hey, why is Jacob on this project? I should be on it. He told me he's never done this before. All of a sudden our boss comes to us and says, Jacob, you're demoted, Colin, you're promoted. So I shared something Jacob, with you. I've already sent that email about you. It's already yeah, CC'd thanks. everyone. So. <laughs> well, yeah, my, my boss will, uh, will read it and reply. Yeah. Uh, Your my, wife. My, my wife will get the email. You'll get an angry email from her. Totally. Um, Sorry. So, so in that situation, it's kind of like, right, I said something that exposed me in an emotional way. You took that information, you weaponized it, and you hurt me with it. So that's what vulnerability is. Taking something or doing something um, that emotionally exposes me or makes me face risk or uncertainty. And in our personal lives, we could understand why that's important right? Because this is how you create connection with your friends, with your family members, your spouse, your significant other. And there's not a lot of um, kind of barriers or, or, or guardrails there per se, because it's, it's your personal life. At work or in any kind of a work setting, whether you have a full-time job, whether you have people who are buying from you, whether you're coaching somebody, whatever it might be, the environment is now different because it's not personal. The dynamic is different. If you have a full-time job, now you have employees, you have salaries, you have hierarchy, you have a boss, you have projects, you have deadlines. Again, if you have a coach, there is money involved. There's a little bit of a hierarchy involved. You're giving advice. You have somebody who's paying you. You are mentoring or coaching somebody. It's, it's a different dynamic. And so the reason why it's different is because in, in most scenarios, Somebody works with you because they believe that you have a certain set of skills. Uh, you know, not to be uh, uh, from the show, the movie Taken, Liam Neeson, right? I have a particular set of skills. So people <laughs> yes. want to... I, I can hear the voice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so people work with you, again, whether you have a full-time job or you're a coach, they work with you because you have a particular set of skills. And they say, hey, you have this particular set of skills. I, I, I think you're a good person that can help me if you have a full-time job hey, we have something that we need to do. You have this particular set of skills. We have this job opening. We have this mutually beneficial relationship. So again, take any of those types of situations that you want. 
let's say the agreement is reached, you have a contract, you're now working together. Again, whether you're a coach, whether you're a full-time employee at a company. And so now what starts to happen is you bring vulnerability into the equation. And let's take from the coach's perspective, right? Somebody comes to you and they ask you a question and now you start to be vulnerable with them and you say, you know, Colin, that's a good question. I've never done that before. Next time we meet and you say, hey, Jacob, I'm trying to launch a course. Um, I'd love some feedback on this. Do you have any suggestions? You know, Colin, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm not really sure. Like, I, I've never done that before. At a certain point, whether you have a full-time job or whether you are coaching somebody, if you're only vulnerable, people are going to look at you and they're going to be like, mm, I don't know what's going on here, but I thought you had this particular set of skills to help me. Now you're always telling me you're not sure. Now you're the one telling me that you need help, uh, right? If you have a full-time job and you show up to work and you say, hey, sorry, Colin, I know you gave me this project. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. You do that three or four times and at a certain point, it's kind of like, well, why do you have this job if you keep making these mistakes, right? Well, I don't understand. So vulnerability inside of any kind of a professional environment is not ideal. So the better approach is to lead with vulnerability. And leading with vulnerability means that you bring vulnerability and you add leadership to it. So typical example, and I always use full-time um, employees, but we can apply it to coaches too. So typical example, again, I work for you, you give me a project, I make a mistake. Vulnerability is I go to you and I say, Colin, I'm really sorry I screwed this up. Leading with vulnerability is, hey, Colin, I'm really sorry I screwed this up, but here's what I learned from the mistake that I made. And here are three things that I'm going to do going forward to make sure that mistake doesn't happen again. That's leading with vulnerability. I was vulnerable with you. I brought leadership into the equation. Um, same thing is true for anything else, right? In any kind of that situation, you always want to bring leadership to the vulnerability. If you're a coach and somebody asks you a question, instead of just saying, hey, you know, I've never done this, or let's say you're even a first-time coach or a first-time leader at a company, right? And somebody wants to work with you, there are, you know, a couple ways that you could say that. So let's say I'm the new coach, you're hiring me, and you say, uh, you know, I want to start working together, and I introduce you to myself, and I say, hey, Colin, uh, I'm a first-time coach, I'm really excited about working together, um, I'm sure we'll figure things out, and I'll be able to, you know, do my best, and everything will be great. That doesn't actually inspire a lot of confidence in you, does it? You're paying me and I'm kind of like, hey, I've never done this before, but it's cool. We'll figure it out. We'll give it a go. Yeah, we'll give it a go and uh, you know, we'll see how it, how it turns up. Instead, what would be better is if I said, hey, Colin, uh, you know, I'm a first-time coach, but um, I'm being mentored by one of the top coaches in the space, and he's going to be making sure that I do a fantastic job in how I coach you. Uh, I also have a couple um, training programs that I'm involved in that go beyond just my kind of traditional coaching that are going to teach me how to become an even better coach. I'm doing these extra certifications so that I can get better. Uh, and together, we're going to come up with a great coaching style that works for you. Now, all of a sudden, that's a different conversation because you're sort of thinking like, okay, well, I, I, I get that Jacob's new, but he's clearly demonstrating that he's trying to get better that he's learning, that he's growing. I've demonstrated I'm working with a mentor or somebody's coaching me. I've demonstrated that I'm taking steps to get better and to close that gap. And that's something that we forget to do in any kind of a business environment. And oftentimes we use vulnerability 
as a way to justify poor performance. And unfortunately, that just doesn't work. Mm. In terms of building your personal brand yep. uh, and this concept and this idea, how does this apply to personal brand building? Um, yep. Because uh, there's, you know, like there, there is a big lean towards just be vulnerable, be authentic, be yourself. Um, and I'm not, I mean, I, I absolutely, you should be authentic, be yourself, but I'm also like not fully bought into that's all you should do. Um, yes. Talk to us about personal brand, how you've built that, how, how this concept applies. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it applies to everything, right? Um, nobody wants to just follow you for you to talk about all the mistakes that you've made, right? I mean, if you look at what a lot of successful business leaders put online now is they talk about lessons. You know, I interviewed the CEO of GE. I've interviewed the CEOs of Netflix, a lot of big brands, Best Buy. When I interview them on my podcast, they don't just talk about, oh yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, that was such a big mistake. Oh, that was such a terrible decision. They always say, that was a bad decision, but you know, I had a similar thing come up again and here's what I learned from that and here's how I, how I you know, change things going forward. So even when building your personal brand, people want to follow you for two reasons. They're able to connect with you and they're able to trust you. They know that you are good at whatever it is that you're doing so that the advice that you give is something that they will pay attention to and hopefully implement. And they're not going to do that if you just talk about, I'm having a bad day. I made a mistake. Here are my biggest challenges or struggles for the day. Um, at a certain point, like I said, whether you have a full-time job or you're building a personal brand or you're coaching somebody, somebody's going to look at you and say, seems like you got problems. Um, it seems like you don't have things figured out. So why should I be coming to you for advice? It doesn't mean that vulnerability is bad and you should never be vulnerable. It just means that you should add <clears throat> the leadership piece to it. And that's the thing that we always forget. Again, whether you're building a personal brand or, or, or not. You're, I'm curious about your book writing, Jacob. Like yes. your book writing process. Because there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who either have books or they want to write a book. Um, how's that process look like for you? What, what, what's been some lessons that you've learned in writing these books or, you know, about leadership, vulnerability, future of organizations, all this sort of stuff. You've written some great books. So what's that process look like for you? So where do you want me to begin with the process? There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot that I can um, say. Uh, I mean, to be frank, you could go anywhere. Just give us a rant on, on like writing a book as an expert. What have, what have been some insights that have made the book go from like a, you know, an eight out of 10 to a 10 out of 10 for you? Sure. For me, I always find that the be at least in my approach, um, I always try to bring together anecdotal and uh, qualitative data. So I want my books to have a lot of credibility so that I can, I can go in front of any business audience, share something with them. And then if anybody challenges me, I have the data or the research that I need to defend whatever it is that I'm saying. One of the big challenges that I see in the world of business books is that oftentimes people will write a business book and they'll cite maybe two, three companies as their example. Oh, look at what Elon Musk does. Mm -hmm or look at what Sergey Brin did, or look at what Steve Jobs did. And then you kind of look at that and you're like, but I'm not Steve Jobs. Every time. Yeah, I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not Sergey Brin, I'm not Satya Nadella. I'm not Elon Musk. So the recent book on leading with vulnerability, I interviewed 100 CEOs, different industries, different geographies, men, women, 
uh, all over the place. And I surveyed 14,000 employees. And so now I can give a talk to pretty much any kind of an organization. And I have both the stories and I have the data to back up things that I say. So my approach is always, uh, and this helps if you ever get imposter syndrome too, because you, you kind of arm yourself so that, right, why does imposter syndrome happen? Imposter syndrome happens because you think, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I don't deserve this. I'm not good enough. Uh, somebody's going to find out that I'm a fraud. Yeah, but if you do the work and you have a survey of 14,000 employees and you have 100 CEOs who are sharing something with you, you're not going to have that imposter syndrome because you kind of have like 15,000 people standing behind you who have given you, right, 100 CEOs, 14,000 employees. You have these people behind you who have given you the information, the insights, and the data. And so you don't have that sense of imposter syndrome because you're basically just sharing the research that you've done. I'm not like making stuff up. So I, for me personally, I love having qualitative and quantitative data. So I try to do that. I've done that with the last three books, one on employee experience, one on the future leader, and this one also on uh, leading with vulnerability. Um, so as far as process goes, I'm very simple. I have a Google Doc. And I type everything into one giant Google Doc. I typically put down a bunch of notes on there on like headings, like themes that I want to talk about. And then I write as much as I can in each one of those sections and then slowly it expands and I move things around and it's a little bit chaotic and it's a little bit, um, you know, disorganized. But I find organization in the chaos. You know, my wife, for example, is very different. She has a separate Google Doc for every chapter of her book. For me, I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's too much. I, like, I, I want everything in one place that I can just scroll and easily see. She wants every chapter separated in its own Google Doc. Um, so that's kind of the, the, how I organize it. I come up with an idea. And then after the idea, I try to get a sense of what that table of contents, what that structure of the book is going to look like. And then I just sort of slowly start to fill in the blanks. So I expand on that table of contents. I add more bullets. I write down questions that I want to answer. Uh, after I start doing interviews with people and collecting data, I start, you know, just randomly throwing out some thoughts and bullets and ideas in there mm -hmm. until I'm able to answer and address all the things that are in that document. And then I kind of organize it. And, you know, two years later, you got a book. With, first of all, that's, that's amazing. That was exactly what I was, you know, asking about. So that's beautiful. Um, in terms of that process with, for you, I know you've gone through some traditional publishers um, for a lot of your books. Have you already got a contract in place with the traditional publisher where they're like, okay, we want you to write that book. And so you've got the proposal, got the tick on the proposal, and then you, you're building it out then based on that timeline. Yeah. So I've worked with Wiley. This is I think my fourth book with them or fifth book with them. But you know, all my books have sold well enough for Wiley to just be like, we're happy with whatever book you want to publish, right? And so I give them an idea. They're like, okay. And, we, you know, we don't need to go through too much of, uh, you know, the song and dance. Uh, for first-time publishers, yes. you actually have to go through a lot. You got to fill out an entire proposal. Um, I think it's like 30 or 40 pages. They ask you for a table of contents, events that you're speaking at, how many people are going to be at each event. And by the way, people could Google, like, Wiley business book proposal or Harper Collins business book proposal. A lot of these publishers just display them where you can download them through, through their websites so you can see what they're asking for. Exactly. But they want a lot of stuff. Sometimes they want writing samples. Yeah. Sometimes they want you to write the first few chapters of the book already. 
They want a full table of contents from you. They want information about you, uh, competing books, and why you think you can stand out. Like they ask you for a lot of stuff. So the first time, yeah, I had to go through that. Um, but ultimately, the number one thing that any publisher cares about is can you sell the book? You could write the best damn proposal in the world. But if they look at your proposal and they see that you're not speaking at any events, that you don't really have a big following on social media, that you um, are kind of non-existent, they're not going to give you the book deal. So the number one thing, ironically, to write a book or to get a book deal has nothing to do with the book. It has your ability, it's with your ability to sell whatever it is that you're going to write. Like yeah, your access you know, to audience. Yeah. That's what they care about, right? The traditional business, mm -hmm. uh, the traditional uh, uh, business book publishing world is what they care about. So, mm -hmm. you know, people need to keep that in mind before they submit a book deal is build mm -hmm. that personal brand, speak at those events. And then when you go to submit your book deal, you could say, hey, I'm speaking at 20 events this year. At each one of those events, there's 500 people. So I'm going to be in front of X, you know, thousands of people. Here's my online following. They care much more about your events and your ability to sell it than they do about your following online. But following online, of course, helps. Hmm. Uh, what is, Jacob, what is your, I know, and I'm just reading into this at the moment, I can see that speaking is a big part and has been a big part of your business model. Yeah. What is the what does your business model actually look like? So people can understand, you know, and maybe even how it's evolved. I'm curious in terms of, and you don't have to say like numbers, but more like percentages of like, you know, this percent of my revenue have come from speaking, this percent has come from online courses. Like, and how has that evolved for you? I'm just curious about what your business model looks like now and sure. maybe how it's evolved over the years. So my business has a few different areas. Uh, of course, number one is speaking. That's a uh, huge part of it. Um, I have a podcast, so there's podcast sponsorships there. There's online events as well too, like virtual keynotes, which was huge during the pandemic, of course. Mm. There is, uh, I recently launched a Substack, so we're playing around with Substack, so that's been a lot of fun as well, so getting people to be paid subscribers. So that is, they get paid subscribers for your newsletter. Yep. Is that right? That's yep, what yep, it is? Yep. yep. So I've been doing that. Um, courses, so I had some courses that I've done as well. And uh, so I've sold those two. But speaking is usually the primary source. But, <clears throat> you know, I have two little kids. Is that the I have same a wife. For your wife. Yeah. 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 So I used to do well. probably 40, 50 events a year. You know, I was like the top tier status with United Airlines, Global Services. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fun, but it's not sustainable over the long run. So I'm constantly thinking of, I would like to do fewer events and charge more and supplement that with the digital side of the business. So I'm constantly trying to figure out what can I do a better job of on the digital side through courses, through things like Substack, through things like, you know, whatever on, on online and digital. Um, so I'm a big, you know, I, I'm learning just as much as a lot of people who are watching and listening to this show. Uh, but one of my big goals over the coming years is to do a lot more with the online space because Speaking is great and I love it, but I also need to be realistic with, you know, long-term feasibility. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, I'm sure the listeners have been incredibly inspired by your story and thank you for being so open and vulnerable with it. Uh, you know, it's always so valuable, especially, you know, as people are coming up the ranks to just hear that true story and what that's like. So it's really valuable. For those people who 
I want to want to contact you or even just like follow you. Uh, where's the best place? And then after that, could you share? Because I know you've got your new book coming out yes. around leading with vulnerability. Could you talk about what the best way to get a hold of that? And then also why, as a coach, as a speaker, that book would be really good for them to get a hold of as well. Oh, sure. So um, why is this an important book? Because I think if you are in any position where you are working with others, if you want to be able to generate revenue and business to unlock the potential of those you're surrounded with, to be able to lead through change, whether it's for your business or somebody else's business, if you want to create trust, and if you want to be able to drive any kind of business performance, I think leading with vulnerability is the best way to do it. Leading with vulnerability is what allows you to come up with new ideas. Leading with vulnerability is what allows other people to come to you with ideas, to create those relationships. It's about two important elements, which I think everybody will agree are crucial for their business, regardless of what business you're in. Competence and connection. Right? I want to be able to connect with the people that I work with, and I want to demonstrate that I'm good at what it is that I do. That's what leading with vulnerability is all about, doing those two things demonstrating I'm good at what I do, being able to connect with the people who are consuming whatever it is that I'm offering. So I think it's very clear why it's important for you because if you don't have those things, if you don't connect with people, if you don't demonstrate that you're good at what it is that you do, not only will nobody hire you, whether you're looking for a full-time job or not, but people won't want to work with you in general, right? You're going to have a hard time as a coach getting a client. If you're selling a course, you're going to have a hard time the way that you communicate in your videos and in your course content, you're gonna have a hard time selling that material to people. So regardless of what it is that you do, if you're in the business where there's any kind of relationship, transaction, money exchanging hands, business of any kind, leading with vulnerability, I think is gonna be the most important thing that you can do, um, especially if you have a team. So where to go to learn more about the book and grab it, people can go to leadwithvulnerability.com. And uh, we should still be doing the bonus, which if people pre-order a copy and email me to bonus at thefutureorganization.com, we'll send them five of the CEO interviews that I did. And I think it's with the CEOs of GE, American, Air, uh, American Airlines, Edward Jones, WW, and BD. Um, so you'll hear directly from them. They'll be sharing their leadership lessons with you. Um, my personal website is thefutureorganization.com and my email is jacob at thefutureorganization.com. So good. And on Instagram, what's your, uh, your, what's your Instagram handle again? Uh, no pressure here. I think it's jacobmorgan8. Let me double check that. <laughs> yes, jacobmorgan followed by the number eight is my Instagram. Um, and LinkedIn is also a huge one for me. I'm Jacob Morgan 8 on LinkedIn mm -hmm. as well, I believe. But all, all those links are through uh, thefutureorganization.com. All of them are, are on that website. Perfect. No, that's great, man. And we'll, we'll put those links in the show notes. Uh, Jacob, it's, it's been a pleasure having you on the, on the Expert Edge. Uh, imagine it's the end of your life. Oh, jeez. Uh, like literally. <clears throat> and there's people around you uh, talking about you. There's your, there's your friends. There's your clients, there's colleagues, there's people who have been impacted by you. What would you hope that they would be whispering about you and sharing with each other? He was a great dad. <laughs> Probably number one. Um, or he loved his family or... Um, 
Yeah, probably something along those lines. He raised good kids. That's cool, man. <laughs> the legacy. I love yeah. that. Brother, it's been a pleasure having you on here. It's always good having another Aussie living in the US uh, <laughs> on the expert edge. And uh, thanks for being on here. Yeah, thanks for, uh, for having me. And hopefully we'll get together in person one of these days. We got to go grab coffee. Absolutely, brother. Why is it so hard to know what content to include in your speeches and webinars? Knowing which ideas to keep in and what to leave out is the difference between just getting claps or signing clients. If you're really serious about making your content highly persuasive, make sure to download the Persuasive Content Builder while it's still available. Go to www.persuasivecontentbuilder.com and get your step-by-step -step formula for designing and delivering content that connects with your audience and moves them to join your programs. Until then, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Expert Edge.